The show you're about to hear discusses films, books, and TV shows in their entirety. Twists, endings, and all. Without fear of spoilers. So if you don't want to know who dies, who done it, or how it all ends, we strongly advise you switch off now. I'm Paul Tyler and welcome to Spoiler, the show which reviews movies, books and TV shows in their entirety. This week we're watching the whole of the first season of the sci-fi drama series Humans. And just another final warning, we will be talking about the whole plot of the series. We will ruin it for you. So if you've not already seen series one of Humans, go away, watch it now and then come back to us afterwards. Have they gone? Right, on with the show. Artificial intelligence is such a huge, all-encompassing, divisive, mind-boggling subject that only a fool would make a podcast about it. So I'm very thankful that we only have to review a TV series. A TV series that not only requires us to get our heads around the huge, all-encompassing, divisive, mind-boggling subject of AI, but also to work out if the writing, acting and direction is any good. And of course, at some point, we'll complicate things by asking Rachel about the soundtrack. Where do all good TV ideas come from? That's right, Scandinavia. Humans is no different. A reworking by Channel 4 and AMC of the award-winning Real Humans. Jag kan inte tro det, vi har en hundbolt. Oh, vi har inte pratat med mamma än, men tänk, tänk på det. Are they okay with this? It's a surprise. In a parallel present, the Hawkins family are too busy to empty the dishwasher and hang out their smalls. So the answer is to bring in a synth, a posh robot to do the housework for them. Will bringing in an artificially intelligent servant ease the tension on the family and save the Hawkins' marriage? Or will it cause more issues, particularly for their computer hacker teenage daughter? Why would I have a problem with a thing that's making my existence pointless? And their curious, coming of age son... Inappropriate <gasps> physical contact between myself and secondary users must be reported to a primary user. Or maybe there will be attachment problems for their young daughter Sophie. You're taking it back. No, I'm not taking it back. On its release in 2015, Humans was very well received by fans and critics alike. Sam Wollaston, writing for The Guardian, described it as a clever, high-energy thriller. Less thrilled was Hank Struver, writing for The Washington Post. He says, Humans does have that pleasingly antiseptic feeling of Euro call about it, which can sometimes lure viewers into the belief that they're watching something classy and sophisticated, when really they're just snacking on the TV equivalent of rice cakes. So, does Humans do what it's set out to achieve? Is it an intelligent yet entertaining TV series with a multi-layered storyline? Or does it leave you wondering if both the Hawkins parents had red hair, at least one of the children cast in the show should have been a redhead? I'm afraid I don't understand the question. Later in the show, we'll be taking a look at the art of the TV recap and listing our top five friendly robots. But first, joining me here in the studio are the barely human spoiler team. It's a man who's seen Bruce Springsteen more times than me. It's Andy Goulding. And a woman who has seen Bruce Springsteen the same amount of times as me, Rachel Burnett. Is that zero then? Yeah, I made an assumption there, Rachel. Rachel Rachel Burnett, sorry me to make your full name, full accreditation here. (laughs) You are correct in your assumption to zero. It's funny, you know, the only gig I've seen this this year the only gig andy i'm not even sure you want you to look look at me while i say this <laughs> the only gig i've seen is five seconds of summer uh, in one of those big arenas where they sell a lot of product and i enjoyed it more than i should have been anyway <laughs> that's anyway. Good, good for you uh, springsteen was good though right uh, yeah yeah and super furry animals so oh, earlier this year. shut up right <laughs> <laughs> okay 
Um, now, taking on a TV series is, uh, well, we review it. It's quite something. And it, I suppose if you don't like the first episode, man, this is going to be heavy. So um, <laughs> let's go to Andy. Andy, was this a pleasure or a chore? Um, well, I was, I was quite pleased when we chose it because I'd, I'd seen it was very heavily trailed on Channel 4 and I thought, well, it, look, it looks quite interesting. But uh, I also thought, well, it doesn't look all that original. I've seen a lot of these kind of robot-y things and, and stuff before. So uh, it was an excuse to, to really sort of sit down and engage with it. So I sat down to, to watch it, not really sure what to expect. And uh, after the first episode, I was, I was quite intrigued, quite sort of drawn in to carry on watching and so I carried on. Like second episode, yeah, I thought, yeah, this 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 is quite interesting. I'll, I'll keep going. And I think about sort of the midpoint, it sort of started to lose me. And by kind of the last few episodes, I I was really looking forward to this being over. To be honest, <laughs> uh, uh, it it lost me. I think it peaks around episode four, and then I thought it. it Eight episodes was too long, and I'd, I'd lost interest by that point. I've okay. got a lot of issues with it, but we'll we'll go through them systematically Excellent. later on. So <laughs> let's just get a finger on exactly how you watched for, for this series. I want to know exactly how you watched it. Did you watch it in a row? Did you watch it in a day? Did you watch it sort of over a period of time? Because that's going to tell us everything we need to know. We, uh, can, we can lock the doors and go home. I watched <laughs> it one or one or two episodes per night over about the course of a week. Now, Rachel, did you fly through it or wade through it like treacle? I'm sorry, Paul, I don't understand the question. <laughs> oh, yes. Um, I don't another, understand the another question. Another episode of Rachel's uh, <laughs> acting. <laughs> you were wasted in wig making. I know, right? Um, I really didn't hear what you said. <laughs> did you like it? I did like it. It was my suggestion, which our producer, Johnny, concurred, I seem to remember. Because okay. I really enjoyed it. I don't know... I don't know why I think it went off halfway. I think it maintained a reasonable pace. Um, I don't know. I was pretty locked into Niska's story. I don't know whether that had anything to do with it, but I was pretty locked into that. And so I was following her more than anybody. And I just, I really, really enjoy it. I think it's really good. I think the acting's really good. And I'm quite intrigued by the whole idea of AI and it looking human. It's, it's a strange thing. It happened to me in um, Steven Spielberg's AI where I got mm. really upset uh, at a certain scene when the synths in that are being ripped to pieces yeah. and I was heavily disturbed by that heavily heavily disturbed but you know they're, they're just machines but they've got human faces and there's there's a lot for, to think about with this so I, I never I never felt that it got boring or anything so I was still I was thinking and thinking and thinking and thinking all the time like how do I feel and what happens if this happens and what there's a ghost in the machine and when does a machine become a robot and when does a robot become human and so I was constantly probably overthinking quite frankly <laughs> but um but no I really enjoyed it so yeah I, you see I'm getting into this character in this spoiler program we've nailed together where i sit on the fence but actually no. actually i kind of agree, I agree with you both it's funny because what were there, were there eight episodes eight, in there? eight yeah. episodes and I, I must admit i do think six have been fine six would have been yeah fine. yeah and we, you know we, this is Although there was 10 of the original one, wasn't there? Yeah. Was there? Yeah. But then, I mean, if you, if you watch perhaps The Killing, the Scandinavians are, you know, they, they do like to, to draw it out. I mean, really, you know, sort of go around in circles <laughs> sometimes. But somehow they do, I don't know, it's, even then you still really enjoy being in their world, the mm. Scandinavian world. And so I think you forgive them for it a little bit. But also with you, Rachel, that... It, it, it does. It opens these doors into your mind about you know the the, the future. Actually, what's happening now? Mm-hmm. And is is Anita really just a glorified washing machine? 
you know, in, 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 in one of those. So in, in that, in that, you've already got a washing machine in your house or, you know, a dishwasher. Who, who's here? Who's got a dishwasher here? No, no, no. no exactly. Good. Oh, oh, John, Johnny's yeah, Johnny producer. And I think <laughs> that tells you everything you need to know. Um, it is, it is just, you know, you can get automated hoovers, this kind of thing. All you're doing really at this stage is putting a face on it and a human face. Mm. Um, but it, it just opens up all these questions. Yeah. Um, so let's go into the Hawkins family. I think that's probably a good place to start. Mm-hmm. And it's brilliant to see Catherine Parkinson on your TV yes. screen at any point, right? Yes. And the uh, the actor who plays Joe, Tom Goodman-Hill. Now, when I saw him, I thought, oh, yeah, he's a safe pair of hands. I thought, you know, I, I, I perhaps wouldn't have expected him always to play a lead role in something. He usually crops up in things. Mm. Um, and you think, oh, oh, he was in that thing. But he, actually, I thought he was a, a brilliant, I wouldn't call it a lead acting role, but, you know, as a strong thing. But... Two ginger-haired people, no red-headed children. Explain to me. Someone. <laughs> um, <laughs> genetic no one can. I mean, things, I mean, like <laughs> manipulation, maybe. I, know, but you, you, I mean, it's actually, I mean, it's only statistics. It's not fact that that you, that, that, that happens. So there you That's go. That's true. Mm, yeah. <laughs> it's a recessive gene, isn't it? It's funny, you know, we've got, we've got this entire subject of AI to contemplate and a huge TV series and I've just taken us there. <laughs> it's too big, a, too big a thing, that's why. It's like, no, I have to make it smaller. Let's talk about hair. But, you know, I mean, uh, the, 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 I thought the children were really, really good roles. And particularly, I, I think, uh, the, the teenage boy in there. Yeah, wow, bless Just him. perfect, awkward moments, doing exactly what teenage boys do uh, by sort of... Uh, att- that scene, I mean, the scene that I'm talking about is when uh, the, 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 uh, Toby, Toby. Toby, I've got it written down there, Toby played by Theo Stevenson. And because there's a sinister feel to it anyway, mm-hmm. and he's coming downstairs at night and he's just about to touch an intimate part of the machine, uh, Anita, and just the way she springs to life and says, yeah. no, you're not allowed to do that kind of thing. And it was just, oh, that was, I thought that was just <laughs> a, a, a perfect scene. And when Anita's brought in into the house... There, there is just this sinister feel, and we're going to talk about soundtrack, perhaps here, aren't we? We could definitely talk about soundtrack <laughs> uh, because it does. There is this undertone in it, which I thought I thought was really well done. Mm. Um, as in, yeah, all right, you know, there, it is a robot, but it's the face. It's the yeah. face that does it, isn't it? It's totally the face that does it. Um, and I think a lot of it is like, do you believe, or did you used to believe when you were a child that your toys used to come alive at night? It had a face, and I think. I, I certainly used to believe it when I was little. So I look for faces and things. Apparently that's got something to do with mental disorders. But um, I see faces and all sorts of things, little eyes and nose and face. So if something's got a face, I start empathising straight mm-hmm. away. Yeah. So putting a face on, on Anita, straight in, like I'm empathising. But the music was certainly getting us to feel a certain way. And the lighting as well. And that first bit in the factory where she looks up to the moon. And that's a bit creepy Mm -hmm. so there is a definite element of creep about it and the fact that laura hawkins would be doing her stuff around the house and would just turn around and there she'd be Mm. and that whole moment of um, i'm watching you and she goes i'm watching you too laura Mm. oh hello (laughs) but um but not but she wasn't being she was just stating a fact she was watching her at that point and this idea, which she she did then say something straight after, where she said, I'm, in many ways, I'm a better parent than you because, mm. you know, I'm stronger, I'm faster, I can, you know, I can protect your children, but I can't love them. And I'm glad she quantified. That's when you know she's not horrible. Yeah. 
You know, so yeah, great, great character, really well played by Gemma Chan. Yeah, I thought so. And there was, there was a great breakfast scene um, <laughs> where, where they all come down to breakfast, and you know, it's all laid out: fresh coffee, orange juice, toast, and things like that. And Sophie says, uh, "Little girl says, oh, we're having a party, you know, because she's, <laughs> she's not used to this kind of thing." And the dad says, no, "This is what a breakfast supposed oh, to be like." And he goes, oh, no, shut up! Shut up! Stop! Stop talking! You fool! Yeah. Uh, and and that's why again, I think that that, that uh, Tom Goodman Hill was a, a, a perfect. You know, in that role, you could you could believe in making these mistakes, mm. these sort of every you know these mistakes that well we've all made. Um, <laughs> so, so Andy, you you know by the looks of things, you've got a list of things you hated about this. Come on, uh, well, I, I wouldn't say I hated it, <laughs> no. uh, but I did have I did have a few issues with it. Uh, we started talking about the family. Uh, I felt that the family dynamic was a little bit cliched. Uh, the kind of like the the older sister who was kind of a bit kind of rebellious, and then the slightly sex obsessed younger teenage boy, and then the the, the sweetie pie little girl and everything. In fact, we'd, we'd seen it a, a lot before, and I mean, I don't have too much trouble with that. I don't mind sort of you know where you are. You sit down to watch something, and you think, all right, that's the dynamic. I'm fine with that. But then straight away in the first episode, there was some seriously clunky dialogue which kept sort of dragging me out of it. There's a bit where they first bring Anita the synth home and they ask the little girl, Sophie, to name her and she chooses the name Anita and uh, Laura, the mother, says, oh, Anita, your friend who moved. No, no one's going to say that. It's it's very, that's very much, here you go, this, mm. is, this is the issue, Give it, giving it to the audience. Yeah. I mean, the whole family's going to know she had a friend called Anita who moved away. To me, it, it started to feel sort of like, and I don't mean this as an insult, but it started to feel like sort of very well-made children's TV, like a, a sort of children's TV drama that, that does, you forgive it that because it gives you everything because you think, yeah, you're good, you're tackling some strong themes, but you, it needs to be only at a certain level for kids to get hold of. And there's loads of great children's dramas that do that. But to me, it, it, it felt like it was just underachieving a bit in in showing us things rather than in mm. telling us them. Yeah, I get that, actually. I hadn't properly thought about the dialogue that much. I was too busy looking at the at the aesthetics and um, and watching the performances. But yeah, yeah, you're right, actually. The dialogue was fairly clunky. Clunky, clunky. Yeah, clunky is a good word. <laughs> I, I absolutely agree with you that there was, there was loads to think about in it. Mm. And this is, I've got my little section of things that I liked here as well, because I, I, I didn't... <laughs> <laughs> I didn't hate this this series, and I'm thinking now series two is coming up. I'm thinking I'll probably watch it. It's helped mm. me enough to see where it goes. But uh, I definitely think that some of the themes in this really fascinated me. The uh, the questions it raises about uh, machines making humans obsolete, mm. and it 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 kind of showed it from from two perspectives. It showed it uh, from Matty, the oldest girl's point of view, in that she was kind of at this stage in her life where she's thinking what she's going to do after school and she was thinking they're making me obsolete and what's the point of even trying to do anything but then the, the other the flip side of it was this this group the WAP we are people who were protesting about it and using terms like dominant species and war mm. and it very much felt like kind of the right wing and left wing views I mean when you, you talk about people being replaced by machines, you often think about sort of left-wing protests against that. But mm. then the WAP were t- talking about dominant species and war, and it mm. that felt immediately makes you think of uh, like immigration and things like that, and these right-wing protests against that. So mm. it, it, those those themes, I think, were quite well evoked. I, I wanted a little bit more of that and a little less mm. of maybe the family drama that 
that kind of took away from that. I think that'll come through in the second season. I think this season was meant to introduce a very small story. Yeah. About and so they focused on two families. They focused on the on the human family and the synth family, and how those two could integrate. And a little bit outside of that, not very much at all. We didn't really see much of the outside world, yeah. really. Um, but we started to get little bits of it. And I think this whole idea of Niska's now going off, and that's going to get into the rest of the world, probably. Yeah, sure, yeah. So I'm hoping that season two is going to get much broader in scope. We'll still have these um, families anchoring us in the story of what we know, but I think it's going to go much bigger. I really hope it will, yeah. because I agree with you. I think that was the most fascinating thing about it and how we use them and what's going to happen. How are people going to see them differently if, when they find out they have consciousness? Yeah. Are they going to stop thinking of them as machines? Or are, they going to, are they going to look at them with fear or with enchantment? Or, you know, are people going to be standing up for them or trying to hurt them? It's, it's a whole bucket of worms. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it? And we'll open that bucket <laughs> a little bit later on and we'll talk I think you know we focused a little bit on the Hawkins family we'll move I think in now to the uh, the synth uh, family uh, just a little bit later on in the show now later Andy is taking a look at the underappreciated art of the TV recap and Rachel will be listing her top five friendly synths that's all after this short break Hope you're enjoying the show so far. If you'd like to help us make more, you can do so by visiting our webpage, spoilerpodcast.co.uk, clicking on the donate button and giving whatever you think we're worth. Alternatively, if you're planning to buy anything from Amazon, if you do that via the links on our website, we'll get a few pennies each time. That's spoilerpodcast.co.uk. Or you can help us out for free and get yourself an audiobook of your choice into the bargain by signing up for a free 30-day trial with Audible via the link on our website. Audible have the world's largest selection of audiobooks, including Robot Overlords by Mark Stay. You can cancel your membership at any time within the 30 days and you won't pay a penny, but you still get to keep your free audiobook. Just go to spoilerpodcast.co.uk and click on the Audible trial ad on the left-hand side. We get a few quid each time someone signs up via our link, which will help... I've not even read the next line, I can already see it. (laughs) (laughs) Right, come on, no... We get a few quid each time someone signs up via our link, which will help producer Johnny add some specialist functions to his homemade Gemma Chan robot. Now, back to the show. So where do we start? My clothes must be removed. Yeah, I was afraid you were going to say that. So welcome back to Spoiler, where we're talking about the whole, the entirety of the first season if you like, of humans. Now, humans portrays some of the suspicion and unease mankind has about robots. The idea of artificial life forms rising up against their creators is an enduring fear. But not all synths are out to destroy the human race. Rachel has been taking a look at the friendly face of movie mechanoids. For every bloodthirsty, spine-ripping robot out to destroy the human race... There's a sweet-natured, sympathetic synthetic to make you question your AI prejudices. Putting Robert Patrick's T-1000 aside, as well as Arnie's T-800 Model 101, well, in the first Terminator film at least, let's focus on the fluffier side of film robots and hope these kinder synthetics are the more realistic future possibility than their murderous counterparts. Here are my top five adorable AI, in no particular order. Number one, Bishop. 
played by Lance Henriksen in James Cameron's Aliens. After her tragic encounter with the deceitful synthetic Ash in Alien, Sigourney Weaver's Ripley was, understandably, less than enamoured with the artificial human, Bishop. Just stay away from me, Bishop. You got that straight? The audience was similarly cautious and remained on guard throughout the film, ready for the moment of treachery. Trust me. However, lovely Bishop proved himself to be anything but glitchy and ended up saving the lives of Ripley and Little Newt, even being torn ruthlessly in half by the Queen Alien in the process. <laughs> Thanks, Uncle Bishop. You're the best. Bishop, you did okay. I did. Oh, yeah. Number two, Sonny, voiced by Alan Tudyk and Alex Proyas, iRobot. My name is Sonny. When a scientist is seemingly pushed to his death by a robot, Will Smith's prejudiced police officer Spooner appears to be on the right tracks, accusing the robot Sonny of the crime. Murder's a new trick for a robot. Congratulations. However, as the two work together to uncover the truth of the incident, we discover that there is more to this robot than meets the eye. And this time, it isn't a psychotic tendency towards murder, but a yearning for liberation and a desire to lead other robots to freedom. My father tried to teach me human emotions. They are difficult. Robots don't feel fear. They don't feel anything. They don't get hungry. They don't sleep. I do. I have even had dreams. Bless him. Number three, Wally, voiced by Ben Burt in Andrew Stanton's Wally. What can you say about Wally? It's clear from the beginning that this is an amiable little chap. Wally. He's a diligent little worker with a love of musicals and an amazing ability to find beauty and the unlikeliest places. If you don't fall in love with Wally after the first 10 minutes, then I think you must be the robot. <laughs> Number four, Daryl, played by 80s child star Barrett Oliver in Simon Wintz's film of the same name. When child robot Daryl, short for Data Analyzing Robot Youth Lifeform, is freed by the scientist who created him, he finds himself first in an orphanage, then fostered by the Richardsons. We're really happy to have you with us, Daryl. Thank you, Mrs. Richardson. Joyce, uh, Joyce, you can call me Joyce, and uh, this is Andy. Joyce, Andy. It's really great to have you here, Daryl. Daryl has no memory of who or what he is, but has uncanny abilities far beyond his years, and sometimes even human capability. The audience senses that this whole thing has the potential to go mightily wrong, and it does. He can't be dead. He was a robot. Robots don't die. But thankfully, there's a happy ending for our plucky little robot, who, in a Pinocchio-style ending, is finally allowed to return to his human family and live as a real boy. Finally, at number five is number five, voiced by Tim Blaine in John Badham's Short Circuit. An experimental military robot is struck by lightning, and in a Frankenstein-esque bit of magic is given life. Alive, Stephanie! Number five alive! Despite his military beginnings, number five is anything but warmongering. The little poppet loves a good read, a bit of dancing, and as it turns out, has a pretty solid moral code. Nice software! Well, you sure don't talk like a machine. So, when the next BBC news report of human-looking robots sends your thoughts to Skynet and Terminators, remember, not all robots are Romans.
Well, thanks for that, Rachel. And all that, and no mention of Metal Mickey. What on earth is wrong with you? <laughs> so, picking up uh, from where we left earlier and talking about family. So, we've talked about the Hawkins family. But when you're watching, you know, you're watching a series, and it can be any kind of series. Let's, let's say Game of Thrones, for example, you're watching something like that, and it cuts to some characters or a scene you don't really quite like. And they do this, you know, plop, move back and forth, back and forth. And sometimes when it got to the Sindh family, I just found myself, oh, no, let's get, let's get, oh, <laughs> go and move on to someone else. I want, I want always very keen on it. Can someone around this table describe, because I don't know why, can someone describe to me why I didn't really like the character of Leo? I don't think you're meant to. I think he's meant to be really quite unlikable because he's living with every single memory he's ever had with complete clarity. He's completely unable to get rid of any memories, which makes him really bitter and mm. really sharp. And a bit of an arse. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you, let's just stop there for a second. I haven't really thought about that. Mm. If you had every single memory and you could pick it out, Chris, oh, no, you just... Yes, yeah, horrible. You'd, just, you know, you'd be curled up in a ball, wouldn't you? You really would. You really would. That really stuck in my mind. See, this is what I'm th- talking about, overthinking, watching yeah. this programme. Mm. When he said that, I spent a good evening thinking about that and because i think we survive on the fact that we can forget things or at least lessen the impact of them if you couldn't if the horrible things have happened to you in your life if you could remember them with crystal clarity and they'd never lessen you would go stark raving mad so I can forgive him his annoyances, to be quite honest, but I can see why he is annoying. See, that was a genuine question. I had no idea why I didn't really like it. <laughs> That's why. And now I know. Thanks. That's all right. Thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Rachel, you mentioned earlier on, uh, you, you had, I don't know, I'm reading into this, I suppose, but your, your sort of fascination with the character of Niska. Yeah. Yeah, I do have a huge fascination with her. I think she's the most complex, most interesting character because she's, she's a bad girl. But she has reasons to be bad. and But she's also very sympathetic. And just, there's so much about her that was just fascinating. Another evening spent thinking about, <laughs> like, how the hell you would cope being in a brothel, being treated the way she was treated, and feeling. This is the thing. She was able to switch off the pain. He told her to switch off the pain. But she would rather feel everything and feel human than turn off the pain and be like a synthetic. Mm-hmm. But to, to know the darkness of a human soul, which she has seen more than anybody has as I'm sure you would in those places, because not only are you a prostitute, but they think you're just a machine. So they will do the basest, lowest, most horrible things to you. And to live like that, I can't even comprehend. And then obviously, further back than that, we get a little bit of an inkling, and I don't think I'm wrong in this, that, that Esla also abused her. Yeah. And, um, and probably made her so beautiful and physically perfect in order to do that. But the thing about her is she's only nine. She's a small child in a grown-up's body, just because she has a consciousness and she looks like a woman, her mind, her brain is very young. And and that's proven when she's playing with the toys with Sophie, which is the most endearing and lovely part of it. And when she properly throws herself in, when she stopped going, well, why are we doing this? Mm. And then she starts going, oh, quick, let's race along. And she's she becomes the child that she really is. And it's just heartbreaking. But I totally empathise with her and I really get why she goes the way she goes. But she has so much love in her as well because her, her feelings for um, for George Milliken, initially quite suspicious of him, which she would be because he's human and he's an older man and what she ever had from humans who are older men. But he gives her so much affection and she genuinely feels for him. And so she has so much potential. She'd just be treated right. I just think she's just the most fascinating character. Mm, I think and, she's brilliant. And and certainly, I mean, we'll, we'll come to this at the end, obviously. But it really bodes well for for, for series, uh, season two. Mm. Yeah, I nearly said series then. Season, mm. <laughs> season two. So let's let's take a, a sideways step and perhaps look at some of the other characters involved then as well. So 
I've got I've got it written down here to to mention Rebecca Front because it's <laughs> wonderful <laughs> to see her act like a synth <laughs> in there, wasn't it? A really sort of dark and, and quite cruel looking character, really, wasn't it? Um, who was looking after uh, George, who was involved in early synth development, as we uh, as we find out, and um, really very fond of his old uh, older older model Odie, who is obviously Odie. yeah, <laughs> who just keeps malfunctioning and is, is pretty incapable. And then there's the policeman Pete as well. Now let's bring this in. A few months before this, I think I'd watched Utopia. Uh, anyone seen Utopia? He was yes. a character in Utopia. No, I didn't see it. But, but because he's, and this is my fault, right, as usual, um, because he's a character in both these things. But I think they both have this eerie air about them and they were both on Channel 4 and this is what the Bake Off's going to be like soon, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's all going it, it felt like, when I was thinking back to the plots of them, I sometimes got them confused just because they have this character. But he does actually play a very different character oh, in totally this. And he's a very capable actor. And he's very good at it. It's my fault. <laughs> I, 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 I was kind of the same thing because I'd, I'd just recently seen uh, Kill List by Ben Wheatley. Where he plays the lead in as well. Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of, I, I felt he was the same character as in that as well. Right. In which case, it's not my fault. This is a revelation. <laughs> well, I'm getting answers today. <laughs> one, one of the things that I think possibly my main problem with with humans is the performances. There, there are some great performances in it. Chiefly, uh, Gemma Chan as Anita, I thought it was fantastic. And as you said, Rebecca Front uh, as Vera, it was great. But I just felt that there, there was there was a lot of weak performances, and there was a there was no sort of consistency of acting styles. I thought everyone was doing their own thing and the director hadn't quite pulled it together into into one whole. So for me, it felt a, a bit all over the place. I mean, you have uh, Gemma Chan being, being wonderful, but then you have like kind of a... Uh, I mean, Rachel was talking about how much she found in the character Niska, but I found Emily Berenton's performance as Niska quite empty, quite blank. I felt she was just... It looked like she was just reading her lines off the wall. But she's a robot for a reason. But yeah, but but not not in the not in that way. It was it was it was just completely blank. It wasn't. Yeah, she has no idea like how a, to communicate. Yeah, but to me, it just looked like she had no idea how to act. <laughs> no, I did. I mean, I, I picked. I'm, I'm going to jump in here. Usual fence sitting role kid, <laughs> but it, there is there, there's a balance. There's a very tricky balance to find. Whether they found it right or not, I don't. I don't know. I, I, I think you probably think they do, Rachel. Perhaps Andy, you don't. And I thought about it that. They're acting as synthetics, and they they did this thin, synthetic school thing before. Mm. So they you know they went through the whole thing about how to be you know sort of non-human but appear you know with a human face because you can't do anything else because you are human. And I, I thought, well, that must be a very tricky balance to to, to strike. You yeah. know, it goes it must go everything they went against in drama. You know, or, or not everything they went against, everything they went for in drama school. You know, is to express themselves and mm. you know and uh, and do this rather than be wooden. Um, <laughs> whereas really, it's kind of a wooden performance that. That's required, but I do. I, I understand what you're saying as well, Andy. I don't know. Um, I'm going to come down on the side of Rachel. <laughs> <laughs> but I, th- I thought that, like, because because obviously I saw Je- Gemma Chan the way she played it. That that was brilliant. I thought it was very kind of original take on it. Uh, obviously, Niska's different from that because she's got consciousness, but she just felt to me like she was she was reading. It. She didn't really give it anything. And then, whereas uh, Colin Morgan, who plays Leo. Seemed he was he was all big kind of all over the place and over the top emotions. Danny Webb, who who played Pro- uh, Professor Hobb, seemed like he was in the Demon Headmaster or something. <laughs> he was he was and uh, I don't I felt everyone was doing their own, like we said uh, Neil Maskell who was uh, DS Drummond he was uh, he seemed to have flown in from somewhere else as well. I thought the whole huh? the whole thing with the Drummonds seemed quite underwritten. I thought. 
uh, Jill Halfpenny's character in particular was very underwritten. She didn't really get any kind of character to play with. She was just used to kind of underline an issue about sex with Simpson. Mm. She didn't get anything to play with at all. So that was a very poorly written uh, part. But I just felt that there, there's some there's some good there's some good performances, but they're just all over the place. It's encapsulated for me in, in William Hurt, who I've never really been a fan of as an actor. He was a big he was a big actor in the 80s. He got Oscar nominated loads of times. I think he, he won one for Kiss the Spider-Woman. But to me, I've never quite connected him with, with him as an actor. He seems to me like he, when he starts a line, it seems to me like he's still trying to work out where he's going to take it. And I, I never quite know what he's going for with the lines. And so George, to me, seemed more removed than the synths. He seemed, I, I couldn't connect with him at all because I, I, I couldn't, I, I couldn't understand what emotions William Hurt was trying to put across to me. That's really <laughs> science, doesn't it? <laughs> it is. I, I just I was, sat there, I sat, no, I, sat, I was sat there thinking what I thought about that. Yeah, me too. Forgetting that I had a microphone yeah, and I yeah. should talk. <laughs> I was just thinking about um, Colin Morgan's performance and you say it's over the top. Do you not think that is possibly because his head is being done in by all these memories? Uh, yeah, and, yeah. I mean, he is a tortured soul. I mean, we're not just talking he's a little bit upset. He is a tortured soul. And... Colin Morgan is fantastic at doing tortured souls. Well, really, really good. I understand that, but he's, he's kind of... Uh, it felt like an over-the-top portrayal of a tortured soul to me. So <laughs> How do you do over-the-top? Rather than kind of, oh, it was... Oh, oh, wow. oh like really in-your-face in kind <laughs> wow. of... Uh, well done, Andy. <laughs> I, know. I, I should have had that role, shouldn't I? I could have <laughs> well, you should. And it, right, if you want to give the benefit of the doubt to Rachel, now I'm going to come down the side of Andy here because if you have to put that much work in as a viewer, and I think we've talked about this, you know, how much work you you should put some work in but we're already busy putting work in thinking about what we think about ai mm. uh, you know artificial intelligence and you know all that kind of thing and thinking well you know sh- should i go to uh, uh, next time i'm in a supermarket should i go to the person who's next behind the counter rather than the put your bagging <laughs> in this area kind of woman and i do that anyway i do you must do that you yeah. do that you do that i, I think <laughs> you do that come on uh, yeah, yeah. don't let the machines take over <laughs> I'm starting a Facebook page. This is going to be big. <laughs> now, each episode of Humans begins with a previously on Humans reminder of the story so far. This got Andy thinking about the little discussed art of the TV recap. While settling down to watch episode two of Humans, I was delighted to discover that the episode opened with a recap sequence. Part of my delight was due to the relief that my ageing brain was being catered for, but a greater part of my pleasure derived from the fact that I have a curious love for these mini masterpieces of editing, which seem to be something of a dying breed. Created as a device for episodic TV to remind viewers of the events of previous shows, recap sequences usually begin with the words, Previously on, read out by a major member of the series cast. Previously on Prison Previously Break. on Buffy the Vampire Spirit. Previously on ER. Previously on Mad Men. They then proceed to summarise events that will be important to that evening's episode with short snippets of dialogue and action from previous shows compiled into a bite-sized package of a minute or less. The result is designed to remind regular viewers of what they have already seen while bringing those who may have missed an episode up to date with the plot. Well, he cleaned up the country, the old Wild West country. One of the earliest TV shows to make use of the recap sequence was The Life and Legend of Wyatt Earp. Wyatt Earp, Wyatt Earp, brave, courageous and bold. 
Running from 1955 to 1961, this Western adventure series had an ongoing storyline from week to week at a time when such an approach was unusual, and so recap sequences helped audiences who were unused to having to use their memories when staring at the tube. As was the case with much programming of this era, plots were relatively simple, and so these early examples of recaps were primitive forerunners consisting only of a couple of voiceover sentences over generic images of the Old West. Wyatt Earp, against his will, is Marshal of Ellsworth, Kansas. The year is 1874, and Ellsworth was one of the wild cow towns of the western frontier. Bill Thompson had killed Earp's close friend, Sheriff Whitney. But despite the effectiveness of this tool, TV executives soon realised the drawbacks of episodes that needed to be screened in a specific order, when standalone stories that returned to the same starting point each week allowed for easy scheduling and maximum repeat value. Accordingly, the following decades were dominated by shows that resolved their situations neatly across the course of an hour or less, with no residual effects on the characters' lives. Shows like The Beverly Hillbillies went a step further, incorporating the concept of the show into the lyrics of the opening theme song, so that newcomers to the programme could join the series at any point. And listen to my story about a man named Jed, a poor mountaineer barely kept his family fed. And then one day he was shooting at some food, and up through the ground come a bubbling crude. Oil, that is, black gold, Texas tea. While this simple approach to storytelling may have been convenient, it was hardly conducive to the creation of strong plots or characters of any depth. It was the growing popularity of primetime soaps like Dynasty and Dallas that reinstated the viewer's need to keep up with the story arc and consequently saw the recap sequence revive. The family left her a trust fund with more money than the Barlow's ever had. Harry, are you saying that he killed his wife for her money? Donna. Edgar. Edgar. Oh, my God. While not necessarily capitalising on the potential to create more satisfyingly fleshed-out characters, Soaps did feed audiences love of lengthier plot lines, cliffhanger suspense, and plot points that actually affected the characters' lives in the long term. Plus, with their relative simplicity, Soaps could be effectively recapped in seconds for anyone who had missed an episode. However, as drama became more sophisticated, the novelistic complexity of storylines and psychological depth of characters could not be so easily summarised. Shows like The West Wing, with multiple character arcs unfolding across long periods of time, would have to reach right back into previous series for key details that affected that week's plot, eschewing the standard drill of only showing moments from the episode directly preceding that evening's show. But as recap sequences have become more complex, they have also become more fascinating. In order to accurately portray those elusive nuances, an editor has to very carefully select the clips to use in order to create a mood at the same time as bringing audiences up to speed with the plot. Appropriately detailed but concise lines of dialogue need to be honed in on, while the images chosen need to have an atmospheric continuity in order to avoid a nauseating sense of jarring cut-and-paste cheapness. Like great movie trailers, the best recap sequences give us the details we need without us even registering it because we are so absorbed by the images on screen. In her essay, Previously On, in praise of the television recap sequence, Laura Bliss compares the very best recaps to haiku, a comparison that perfectly highlights what a delicate process creating these little works of art really is. So, in what is widely acknowledged as a golden age for TV drama, 
Why are recap sequences becoming less frequent despite the greater sophistication of series television? One reason is the rise in popularity of binge-watching, the practice of viewing an entire series from beginning to end in one or two sittings. With so many new series available at the click of a button through online media services, viewers are more frequently watching large numbers of episodes back-to-back, and recaps in this case are redundant at best, and at worst, mildly annoying. Also, the concept of missing an episode of something has all but died out in an age when people rarely tune in to watch at the designated time listed in their TV guide. With the ability to record shows or watch them at our leisure on online catch-up services, very few people need a recap sequence as insurance against a disrupted viewing schedule. For viewers like myself, who, contrary to any radio shows to which I might contribute, don't like spoilers, there is also an inbuilt problem with recap sequences in that they effectively tell you what plot strands from previous episodes are going to become important in the forthcoming instalment. Unexpected callbacks are therefore deprived of their ability to surprise, or sharp-minded viewers may also be able to work out where stories are going by what has been included in the recap. But while it may come with its own set of problems, the recap sequence is infinitely preferable to its two evil siblings, the next time on sequence and the pre-cap sequence. Next time on sequences appear at the end of an episode and are essentially trailers for the next instalment. Unfortunately, like the worst kind of film trailer, they usually give away far too much of the plot in an attempt to entice potential viewers by showing the most dramatic moments. When watching a series which utilised the next time on sequence, it was common practice in my family's house for one person to volunteer to sit poised with the remote in readiness to change channel the moment the episode ended and the spoiler-filled mini-trailer began. The often abrupt segue from a show's final scene to its next time on sequence meant that whoever volunteered for remote duty invariably had the ending of the episode ruined by a sense of anguished expectancy that overrode whatever emotions the drama on screen was meant to be evoking. Although I hate next time on sequences, I understand that a certain type of viewer, i.e. impatient, would appreciate the chance to have a glimpse of the next episode of their favourite show. The precap sequence, however, is far harder to be understanding about. A precap sequence appears at the beginning of an episode, often opening with the words, Tonight on. It then proceeds to show the main dramatic moments of the episode you're about to watch. Tonight on Baywatch. Beach full of potential victims. I see a beach full of potential assassins. Shows that have used precaps include Baywatch and St. Elsewhere, and these infuriating intros never fail to suck the dramatic tension out of the viewing experience. Tonight on St. Elsewhere. You are married to a rising star. Would you call yourself sexually promiscuous? Precaps were prevalent in the 80s when the arrival of TV remotes saw an increase in channel surfing. The thinking behind them was that if you could grab a terminal channel surfer's attention by adding together every big stunt, guest star and surprise plot twist in a show, then they might stick around to watch the whole thing. Unfortunately, this bullet pointing only served to make the actual process of watching the episode into a tedious gap-filling exercise. Unlike the recap sequence, there was no artistry in constructing this easily identifiable collection of button-pushing highlights, and thankfully, pre-caps and drama shows eventually fell by the wayside. Although the process is still regularly used on reality TV shows, its natural, spiritual and intellectual home. The recap sequence is a prime example of something we take for granted as a quickly cobbled together device, which actually, at its very best, is a glowing testament to the stealthy genius of our underappreciated editors. I hope you've enjoyed this feature on the recap sequence. 
Be sure to tune to Spoiler next time when Rachel's secret identity is revealed, Andy and Johnny's affair is finally exposed, and Paul faces up to the fact that he will one day be forced to watch Singing in the Rain. Great stuff. Thanks for that, Andy. And something that links into my mind, I I, I was going to discuss this anyway, is... Uh, so I don't know where you watch this. I watched this on what is now four used to be four OD on a tablet device, whatever. And they have these little caps, don't they? The, the, the screen cap things that you, you put your little finger on on the tablet, which then puts a, a finger mark on the tablet. And you have to wipe <laughs> that off, and then that wipes off there, and you end up opening another app and all this kind of thing. Oh man, alive! But those screen caps. Sorry, this is the point I wanted to make. Those screen caps. Um, if you're watching a series, even by the fact that you know that someone's in series in episode seven of series one, and this is not just for this, this could be anything really, but particularly perhaps this, the fact is you know they're alive. You know yeah, it's, yeah. it's kind of it is a spoiler. Now this is a program all about spoilers, but we're right up front about it. <laughs> and we, <laughs> we say it. It's in the title. It's in yeah. everywhere, right? But those oh, it just annoys me. Mm. Really annoys me. Oh, it's frustrating. There was um, Merlin, which Colin Morgan was also in, um, and I was an avid fan of that when that first came out for the first four series, and then I lost plot. But you didn't know who was going to be alive or dead or who was good or bad, and actually you could tell from the screen caps, oh, she's clearly gone bad because look at the makeup on her. Yeah. And it's, oh, no, that's ruined it. So that used to drive me around the bend. So, yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that one. One thing about, about death, it links sort of nicely into a note I've got here about, about deaths in fantasy and sci-fi things, mm-hmm. is that... I was thinking of the the episode that ends with Max's sort of death. Uh, and I, I read a lot of reviews that said it was like the most touching moment of the series and things like that. One thing that, that annoys me, not not just in humans, but in, in any sort of fantasy or sci-fi thing, is that I feel that death has, has kind of been devalued in them because they always find ways to bring people back. Mm. And so I'm, I'm watching it. And whenever anyone dies, I think, oh, well, I, I, I'm not convinced that they're dead. I was watching an X-Men film the other day, and at the end, like, there's uh, the grave of uh, Charles Xavier. And I, th- I thought, he's not dead. He's not dead. And then, sure enough, a little uh, post credit sequence, he comes back to life again. Yeah. And in the, it was the same with humans. When, when Max sort of died in this, I had no emotional response to it because I thought it had been so devalued that... Uh, th- that I thought, why should I care? They're probably going to... And he mm. does, he comes back. Yeah, and pretty quickly as well. Yeah, I mean, George dies, doesn't he, yeah. uh, later on? But I had no emotional response to that just because I felt like everyone in the scene was doing different things. It was the what I was saying earlier that I, I didn't feel anything... I had anything to grab onto because there was no sort of governing... I think it's a, a directorial error more than a... Mm than a performance error because someone should be pulling that together. Should we have watched the Scandi version just so we could have said, uh, yeah, I, well, you know, I prefer the Scandi <laughs> version. <laughs> Would we have had to have said it in that voice? Yes. <laughs> in that case, no. <laughs> I watched it without subtitles. You know. <laughs> I'd be quite interested to see the Scandi yeah. version, actually, because I think it, uh, it sounds like it does focus a bit more on those themes that I was most interested mm. in over the kind of family drama sort of route that it, it was taken in the English version well i saw a, a trailer for it uh, in in some of the prep for this and do you know what i used to watch the trailer i think and i think you'll probably end up watching it from that purely because the synths look less human they they look do you know what they look like they're going to look when all this eventually happens and a little bit rubbish and, <laughs> and synth, but really kind of creepy and sinister all, all the more because of it and you know there's there's there i think they 
certainly Gemma Chan does that those those sinister looks in this like you say Rachel just mm. perfectly yeah. and I think you said that as well Andy you know I think we all agree with that yeah. just wonderfully however uh, you know just just w- watch that clip and I think you know by the time we all next meet up for the next recording of spoiler I think we'll have watched at least two or three of those episodes <laughs> but uh, let's also bring in uh, and I, I think it's it's relevant at this point to bring in an emergency question from the uh, the the legend uh, Richard Herring uh, <laughs> from the Rahulester Per Podcast. Uh, now, uh, because uh, as well as being a podcast uh, spoiler, it also goes out uh, on a Ofcom rated radio station. Uh, so Ofcom licensed radio station. So uh, we need to be careful when we uh, word this. But my que- <laughs> question using Richard Herring's Rahulester Per. Rahulester Is it <laughs> cheating to have intimate relations with a robot? As in... Joe. <laughs> <laughs> Joe, that was another one that was another evening spent thinking. Because, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was strange because I thought, well, what's the difference really between that and one of those blow-up dolls? <laughs> because to him, it's and it robot. is his perception, it's not, it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks about her or if they think she's real or whatever. To him, she is a robot. Mm-hmm. So, ergo, blow-up doll. So... I don't know. I was a little bit torn. Yeah, what he did was pretty despicable. But was he? She she said cheating, but there was no emotional connect, was there? And could he have just been doing that with a blow up doll? I don't know. I think it's the fact that that she she looks so real. She looks like another woman, doesn't it? Yeah, it's but the, he doesn't the, see that though. It's. I mean, it's, it feels like the difference between being caught. This is going to get too dirty. (laughs) It's a funny thing, Andy, before you started talking, I was about to interrupt and say, I know what Andy's thinking. He's thinking, please, I didn't have to answer answer this question. (laughs) Now, 40 years, 40 years on this planet now, and I know now when I can actually comfortably say, do you know what, I don't know what I think about that. And leave it there, <laughs> and, and just walk away. You don't have to, you, Andy. You don't have to answer Thanks. the question. If you Thank, want you. To. Thank you. I'll Rich tell you see, what I was going to say later. See, I was just overthinking it. You see, already. Yeah. So I'd already thought about it a lot. But I certainly wouldn't. If I was his wife, I wouldn't have liked that at all. No, obviously. <laughs> okay, so let's, let's move towards the end. And what happens next? I mean, it's going. I think our problem now is we know it's going into a series two, mm. um, and we're seeing a trailer for it. But basically, Niska runs away with a floppy disk full of consciousness. <laughs> a floppy disk. <laughs> Do you know most people under the age of? What, 20? You say floppy disk and they go, what the heck's that? I think most people under the age of 35. Oh, don't. (laughs) That moment, isn't there, where uh, Fred just sort of stops still in the garden and humans Mm. and... uh, and Joe says, has he crashed? Yes. And Toby says, crashed just so, 20th century. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's funny, just as we, uh, we come towards the end now and we're about to, uh, to give a rating and whatever, you just realised that Rachel's not really mentioned the score. Hurrah! <laughs> 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 I have to mention the score because you said something earlier about Utopia. And saying, oh, it was really similar. It made me think about humans. And probably, possibly one of the reasons is because the composer for both was Cristobal Tapia de Villa, an amazing composer, really, really clever. And he also did The Crimson Petal and the White. I don't know if anyone saw that. That was absolutely amazing. And most recently, The Girl with All the Gifts, which has just come out in cinemas. So he's on the ascendant, um, which is really cool. But yeah, amazing composer and a very unique 
um, sound. So I imagine with Utopia and humans having the same composer, that could have linked the two in your head. More than likely. Yes. But I just didn't <laughs> think that's why it was. Oh, I see. Music's I, very important. I, look, I <laughs> love coming in this room with you people. I learn so much about myself. <laughs> um, right. And well, actually, let's, let's dwell a little bit there because music is so important. Um, it's, you're working on a score special for Spawn. I am indeed. Moment, aren't you? I am. Uh, which will be coming out very, very soon. And um, who have you managed to uh, interview so far? So, so far I've interviewed Stephen Rennix, who was the composer for Rim. And he also did the score for Frank, which is just a masterpiece. I've also spoken to Debbie Wiseman, who's the current composer in residence at Classic FM. But she's also had a very long and varied career. She's scored TV like Father Brown, but also things like vampire lesbian killers. <laughs> and um, and But also things like Wolf Hall and Dickensian, which are just fantastic. She's a lovely woman. And then um, most recently, a young lady called Deborah Lurie, who um, is... Uh, Californian, and she does a lot of the additional music that you often see, where it says composer, blah blah blah, additional music by. All right. She's one of them. Um, she also does her own scores as well, but she works quite closely with Danny Elfman. So when I was interviewing her, and she kept saying, "Oh, Danny, oh Danny," I was like, "She's talking about Danny Elfman." <laughs> so, but absolutely fantastic, and such amazing insights into the industry as a whole, not just the score, but into the whole way that films are made, and especially from her being in Hollywood. Really interesting. So some great insights coming up there. Excellent. Something very much to look forward to. Uh, something not to look forward to is the uh, rating system I've given <laughs> it uh, this time around, which I think, is, what are we are Series 4 now? Yeah. Yep. Series 4, Episode 2. And I think this is the most uninventive rating. Uh, I think we're, I'm, I'm running out, basically. I'm, really? I'm, I'm, yeah, I've dried up. Oh. Um, I've written down, will you be watching Series 2? And I, I, I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, I think, you know, the, you look at the features that you two bring to this programme and it really, you're doing the heavy lifting here. And I just, I, you know, I, that's, will you be watching series two? I mean, that's all I've brought to the table. Uh, but I do want to know the answer. I will be watching series two. Have you seen the trailer? I haven't seen the trailer yet, actually. It's got Carrie Ann Moss in it. Oh, has it? Yes. Ooh. Ah. Mm, I will definitely be watching series two then. I like Carrie Ann Moss. I think, despite all I've said about it so far, I think I, I will watch Series 2. I'm quite interested to see where they're going to take it next. And like Rachel says, it may be that they've got some of the sort of more mundane things out of the way and they're going to take it in the direction that I really wanted it to go in this first series. Even, do you know, even if they don't let them develop this and let them move it on, get get some more out of this. You know, Utopia should have gone on for more. Mm. Um, do you ever yeah. see that BBC series Survivors where, you know, there were the only six humans left on oh, Earth yeah. or something? Oh, brilliant, wasn't it? They dropped that after a couple of series they as did. well. Exactly. Yeah, mm. time and investment is needed yes. uh, in these things, and hopefully, a few series down the line, Andy will be screaming from the rooftops just how good human is, <laughs> um, and uh, we'll be just about agreeing with him as well. Um, and talking of Andy, let's leave you with a fabulous poem. You can buy a machine that will keep your house clean and help in maintaining its homeliness, but the wonders of science can't make an appliance to counter the horror of loneliness. When push comes to shove, the true glory of love can't be artificially simulated. I'm willing to bet that the best you will get is briefly depressingly stimulated. If you like to get nude with machines, I'm no prude. Indulge without any compunction. But ensconced in the dark, if you do feel the spark, that's due to a minor malfunction. For momentary pleasure leaves nothing to treasure when robbed of the personal and tender. Once the physical act has been fully unpacked, you're basically spooning a blender. May I point you toward any friction burns ward where the best evidence that's on offer is a handful of dreamers with strong vacuum cleaners who've already proved my hypothesis. 
You've been listening to Spoiler, hosted by me, Paul Tyler, with Andy Goulding and Rachel Burnett. Our theme music was composed by Ron Butcher. If you've enjoyed the show and would like to support us, you can go to our website, spoilerpodcast.co.uk. Click on the donate button and give us whatever you think we're worth. You can also sign up for a free 30-day trial with Audible and get yourself a free audiobook by going to spoilerpodcast.co.uk and clicking on the Audible trial banner on the left-hand side. Or you can help us out simply by telling your friends about us, sharing links to our show, or writing us a nice review on iTunes. Next time on Spoiler, we're taking a look at David Lynch's neo-noir mystery, Mulholland Drive. Now I want you to think and stop being a smart aleck. Can you try that for me? If you'd like to contact us, you can email hello at spoilerpodcast.co.uk. Find us on Twitter or Facebook or go to our website, spoilerpodcast.co.uk. Spoiler is produced by Johnny Hall and is a Joe Schmo production. The show was recorded at the studios of Siren FM in the heart of the beautiful cathedral city of Lincoln. There's no place for us here. You are wrong. 